one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 536 for the week of Monday, November 18th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. It's been a couple of days in space. Can't wait to go ahead and get started to talk about it. Oh, same. Boy, do we have a lot to cover and not enough time to cover it. Uh, welcome as well, though, Mark Ratterman. Well, I'll be brief in that case. Hello. Short, simple, to the point, so I won't belabor this any longer, and we'll get right in to our first story, which was the successful launch of an Atlas V rocket today at 1.28 p.m. Eastern Time from Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Cape Canaveral, Florida. To sum it up, MAVEN is on its way to Mars. To elaborate, I'll hand it off to Gene. Yeah, thanks, sir. That's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the uh, MAVEN spacecraft left the surly bonds of Earth to uh, go ahead and uh, get to Mars. Uh, MAVEN, or the uh, Mars Atmospheric and Volatile Evolution Mission, uh, launched right on time at uh, 1.28 p.m. Eastern Standard. Uh, the the uh, countdown was uh, a little, uh, little interesting. Uh, we had a couple of uh, weather glitches along the way. Uh, kept on hearing, I was monitoring the launch, and I kept on hearing uh, uh, concerns about cumulus clouds off in the distance, but they never really came into the uh, the 20-mile, I think it's a 20-mile uh, uh, radius of, of the pad. It was also some sort of odd issue with a, uh, with a transducer on the Centaur, I think it was, uh, but that too, it had to do with a, a, a fill and drain valve. Uh, on the Centaur, but it didn't really uh, give a lot of concern, and and uh, in turn, it uh, after a, an anomaly investigation, decided it was not a constraint. Uh, weather finally looked good for the uh, for at least for the early part of the launch window, which again opened up exactly at one uh, twenty eight p.m. Uh, it went about two hours. Uh, the weather today was uh, was about a 60% chance of weather giving a go, and it cooperated totally. Launch itself was a nice, slow, majestic launch in, into the sky. Uh, reason why, and somebody actually on Twitter had asked me this question, why was it so slow? Uh, going up, uh, uh, going uphill, and the reason was that this particular atlas was in what I believe they call a 401 configuration, which means they did not have any of the uh, any of the solid rocket motors attached to it at all. There were no strap-on boosters, so the atlas was sort of on its own, and uh, it had a very, very nice, you know, slow, majestic rise into the heavens. Mark, you and I were there for uh, for MSL, I believe, in uh, in 2011, and that atlas just just you know picked up and went. This this thing was just just really a very slow, majestic rise. It kind of kind of was reminiscent of uh, of the Saturn V a little bit. That it too had that slow, majestic rise into in, into the air. The uh, this, but to continue with today's activities, uh, the uh, spacecraft separated right on time at 52 minutes after launch, and uh, powered up nicely. The uh, the solar wings unfurled nicely, and the spacecraft so far is 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 very healthy, and uh, will be going on its way to Mars. Uh, it is expected that uh, 
Uh, it will enter uh, Mars orbit on September 22nd of 2014. After that, it will undergo a five-week missioning phase where it will go ahead and it'll test um, all of the, uh, the nine experiments that are on board the spacecraft. Uh, to make sure that uh, everything is all good there. But I believe um, the uh, principal investigator indicated that he didn't really expect any really good science until early 2015 because it, it may take them a little while to understand what the instruments are doing and, and so on and how to, how to deal with those instruments while, uh, while the spacecraft is uh, in Mars orbit. But to, to give folks a little idea of what this whole mission is all about, it's all following NASA's strategy about Mars. And this one's, you know, again, no different here. It's, it's, the strategy really is follow the water. And the whole purpose of this particular mission is to try to understand uh, the current climate of Mars to give a better picture of what the past climate was like. Mars obviously at some point was a far wetter place than it is today. Uh, there's evidence all over the place. There's, of course, the, the dry river beds that crisscross the surface. Uh, they have found uh, what they call conglomerate rocks. Uh, these, little con these conglomerate rocks are only found in areas that had a lot of water in it. So, obviously, Mars was a much better and, and much more hospitable place than it is today. NASA, just this past week, uh, released a video of what the surface might have looked like some you know, billion years ago. And it gave a very lush appearance. So, the question is, just what happened? Why did Mars all of a sudden turn into this you know, this, this dry, arid, desert place that we see here today. How did this all happen? What were the mechanics? Uh, if we can understand what went wrong on Mars, maybe we can get a better picture of what's going on here on Earth, too. So there, there are implications here, uh, not just for the future of Mars and Mars exploration, but also trying to understand our own home world here. So that is, is part of the crux of, of what MAVEN's really, really going to do. Um, MAVEN is, is kind of a, also a, a bit of a follow-up to, to, I think, a, a mission that we lost, the Mars Climate Orbiter, which flew in, in, in the 1990s. And unfortunately, we lost that particular spacecraft when uh, the contractor was using uh, Imperial measurement and of course, the computer programmers here were using the metric system, and unfortunately, the spacecraft flew a little too low and unfortunately burned up in the atmosphere. Um, hopefully, that will not be MAVEN's fate here, but uh, I know one of the instruments on MAVEN, for instance, is going to be dipping into the, into the upper atmosphere to try to get a better understanding of what's going on there. Uh, the MAVEN mission... I think is scheduled for one year. They expect to have another year follow-up, but there's enough propulsion. If, if everything goes well for this particular spacecraft, there's enough uh, fuel in the propulsion system for this, this particular mission to go about 10 years. And uh, we do have two other orbiting assets uh, in uh, Martian orbit right now, I believe it's Mars Odyssey and the Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter. Both of those assets are getting a little bit long in the tooth, if you will. Uh, they're getting old, um, and we're not too sure how long they're going to be hanging around. So along comes MAVEN, and uh, it will, too, probably replace one or one of those vehicles as a uh, relay, as a communication relay station for both Curiosity and for Opportunity well, on the ground, and later on uh, possibly InSight uh, in 2016, and of course the uh, the Mars 2020 rover, which is which is scheduled to launch then and uh, uh, shoot for Mars then. So um, there are you know, possibilities for uh, for Maven to also serve as a as a com relay. Also, I believe it will be supporting uh, the ExoMars mission that ESA is, uh, is going to be doing for also the same purpose for communication relay. 
Now, one of the questions that was asked, I believe, during the science uh, briefing on Sunday was about the, the Indian mission that is, that is going to Mars right now. And I believe um, during that press conference, it was indicated that MAVEN is actually going to beat the Indian mission to Mars about two or three days, not, not by much. Uh, is there going to be any collaboration between them? Well, I believe there's a different set of experiments on the Indian Space Research Organization's probe other than, than MAVEN, so there won't be any real direct collaboration, but I believe, too, that the, the two parties will be set up, up to compare notes on certain pieces of experimentation that both probes are carrying. So, again, there's going to be a little bit of cooperation there. And I believe, too, we're also going to be supporting that mission uh, through the Deep Space Network. So uh, there, there's some international collaboration uh, with MAVEN and, and with uh, the ISRO uh, on this, too. So, again, it's, it's going to be a worthy mission. I'm looking forward to the next big step. I mean, launches are always great things. But that is just the one hurdle to jump over. There's still a lot of milestones left. There's two, still two, uh, two mid-course correction burns that are going to be occurring on the cruise out to Mars. But uh, I'm, I personally am looking forward to uh, Mars orbital insertion in uh, September of uh, 2014, which I believe uh, September 22nd, 2014, 2014. It's almost around my birthday, so it's going to be kind of a, a neat little birthday present. And um, I am so looking forward to uh, seeing the science that's, that's going to pour out of this. Uh, there's going to be a, a, a rather elaborate um, outreach. Uh, the uh, science team indicated that they really want to get the science out there as soon as they possibly can. Of course, they have to do their own review to make sure that they're not putting out erroneous information, that the information they're putting out is correct. But they want to get the science out there so people can start playing with it. Um, and, uh, it's, it sounds like it's going to be an exciting mission and a great addition to the, uh, to the fleet that's, uh, that's right now on Mars. So, uh, uh, go Maven, uh, Godspeed, and we'll be watching the mission really, really close. Yeah, it's hard to add to that. You summed up a lot of it. You know, it's amazing though, eight science instruments, a couple of those being science packages, so plenty of science to be done there as well um as you mentioned it's also will serve the purpose of a data relay satellite so it's multi-purpose multi-science one thing i found that was interesting that someone posted on twitter uh is you know we're comparing it to the mars orbiter mission which was india's maven was in and out of earth's orbit in 58 minutes the mars orbiter mission will be out december 1st on top of that as you mentioned, they're only going to be getting there a couple of days apart, with MAVEN scheduled for September 22nd, and I believe the 24th or 25th for the Mars Orbiter mission, but don't quote me on that. So, a few little interesting coincidences there, obviously, with the window of getting to Mars as narrow as it is. And I'll add, to the, uh, uh, the cost of the mission. Uh, MAVEN actually came in under budget. So, uh, so there were some questions as far as what uh, what lessons can be learned there. Uh, to, to also give a, a little bit of perspective, too, on how big uh, the spacecraft really is, it's only about the size of a, of a school bus. The, uh, the MAVEN spacecraft is, is about 37 and a half feet end-to-end -end from solar panel to solar panel, and it weighs about maybe, what is it here, um, 5,410 pounds, which is about the same as, you know, a fully loaded SUV. Uh, it, so it's, it's not, it's, it's not the biggest spacecraft in the world, which is probably why too, they, the, the, the Atlas V was configured the way it was. Uh, but it's, it's going to pack quite a, quite a punch as far, as far as the, its science ability is concerned. But I, again, I just had to add that in that I believe the, the, the total spacecraft budget on this one was $671 million, and it actually came in under that. This is a project that's 10 years in the making. 
So, you know, that's a long time for a project to go through and then almost be delayed and to have major problems because the government shut down. And again, you know, a 10 year old project to come in under budget uh, to successfully launch that I have to give huge credit to NASA, to ULA, to everyone involved. That's just that's an accomplishment. And as the project manager, Bruce Joukowsky said, we're going to Mars. So Maven is on its way to Mars, and we'll check up with it again in 10 months. All right. So as we continue along then, we will go to another launch. Uh, This launch is one that, as of this recording date, hasn't happened yet. But by this release date, hopefully, will have happened. And that is another one out of the Wallops Flight Facility in Wallops Island, Virginia. So you might recall a couple of months ago, I believe it was back in September, they launched a Minotaur rocket carrying Laddie on its way to the moon. And much of the East Coast got a chance to see it. Well, the East Coast is getting a chance to see another Minotaur launch. And this is ORS-3, Orbital Suborbital Program 3. And that is scheduled to launch sometime between 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. But... What makes this special is not only the fact that it can be seen from probably even a larger launch radius than Laddie, but it is carrying an amazing number of satellites. You know, we talk about things that carry a couple of CubeSats, you know, sometimes 8, 10, try 29. That's right. The vehicle will be carrying 29 different types of satellites bunch of those being CubeSats, of course, uh, as well as the STP-SAT-3, which is a host spacecraft for five more experiments and sensors to measure space environment. So a lot packed into one tiny little rocket, but that tiny little rocket is going to be packing a power punch as it launches through the East Coast. Yeah, Sawyer, the fun fun thing about this is that uh, I I know, for instance, from Laddie, uh, where I need to be, uh, from my home here in, here in New Jersey, it was clearly visible from my backyard. And I believe this one is just going to be up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, it's going to be visible from you know, northeastern Canada, Maine to Florida, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky, uh, if the weather conditions are, 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 are in good shape. Uh, this is going to be quite a, quite a spectacular run. Uh, this one is, is going to be quite visible. So uh, I believe, too, there's some student experiments also being carried on board, board this particular vehicle. I could be wrong. Uh, again, I'm, I'm getting my data from a, uh, a Space.com article uh, by Joe Rao. It's dated today, November 18th. Uh, hopefully, I know by the time this, this goes on, the launch would have come and gone. But if, if folks out there are, are – uh, I hope folks really, really take advantage of seeing a – a launch from their own backyard. It's it's going to be quite spectacular. If it's anything like Laddie, it'll be quite good. So get out there and take a look at it. Exactly. And as we mentioned, this is sponsored by the ORS office, hence ORS-3. They will also be flying on top of all the CubeSats uh, a special system called the Autonomous Flight Safety System. It'll be in its demonstration mode, and this is from Spaceflight Insider. Um, the launch of it will be one of three certification flights to qualify it for use, which will then have the potential to reduce the costs even further in regards to operations and maintenance on the range by eliminating the older safety infrastructure currently in use. So a lot, as I mentioned, packed into this tiny little spacecraft, the 61-inch fairing, if I remember correctly. Well, even though this is coming out a little too late, hoping you got a chance to see the launch, and best of luck to Orbital and the ORS office, and go Minotaur! Okay, so to finish off round number one, we are going to go to an interesting lander that we don't talk much about, but Mark will tell us more. Well, this is about Project Morpheus. I'll give you the spelling first, M-O-R-P-H-E-U-S. Project Morpheus is a prototype planetary lander and testbed for some advanced spacecraft technologies with autonomous landing, hazard avoidance technology. This is based out of NASA's Johnson Space Center. Now this project has just completed a test program of tethered uh, flights at Johnson on November 7th. And their final objective 
was quite impressive. Their actual landing point was only off from the target by one inch in one direction and six inches in the other. So it demonstrated quite well that it has that autonomous landing capability. Morpheus is on its way to Kennedy Space Center. It'll be continuing its test program there. It'll be untethered flights. It'll be free flight. They'll have a hazard field to find the landing spot in. And I think that test program is going to be more and more impressive as we go. Now, the engine for Project Morpheus, they're talking about in the future having the engine that would carry an ascent stage from the lunar surface with a lander containing three to four people to thing. This is something that has some real world potential in the future of manned landings on the moon. So Project Morpheus, cheers. Have a smooth trip to Kennedy Space Center. If I'm lucky enough to see you go by, I'll certainly wave. Now that I know what the truck looks like, thanks to a nice little picture on Twitter by Morpheus Lander, which is their Twitter account. So go Morpheus. I'll be keeping my eyes open for you. Yeah, Mark, I think we all are. Um, a little little bit of history, too, if I recall. Uh, the Morpheus Lander uh, was actually part of a larger project at one point. Uh, called Project M. It was uh, uh, to send a uh, version of Robonaut to the uh, to the lunar surface, believe it or not. And uh, they hoped to do that in about a thousand days if they were given the funding for it. And unfortunately, that project did not take flight uh, flight uh, as much as they wanted it to. Uh, but uh, the Morpheus lander is the only uh, artifact left over from that. And uh, indeed, uh, it, it will eventually be shifted over to, uh, to the uh, piloted uh, program and uh, will probably be the successor to the, uh, to the LEM or the lunar module that you see out there in, uh, uh, out there over at the, the Kennedy Space Center well-preserved or uh, at the Smithsonian. And uh, I, I too, I'm I'm quite eager to to see this thing go and to see this uh, to see uh, Morpheus do strutted stuff because it it it, it, it as you said, Mark, it's going to be the future. So my fingers are totally crossed on this, and I'm wishing the whole project well. And I believe if anybody's interested, I think there's there's still a an, an iPad app for that where you can go ahead and and simulate yourself uh, an untethered or a tethered flight. Uh, on this iPad uh, application, so there's a little bit of a tie-in there. Uh, if you visit the iTunes Store, it's totally free because NASA was the one who constructed it. And if there are, I believe there's a tie-in too, that if there is a Morpheus test, that particular iPad application can tie into uh, real-time telemetry during the test. So uh, if you do see a, a a test out there for the for the project. You can just fire this app up, and you can get real time uh, telemetry for, from the Morpheus team uh, as it's relayed through this app. So uh, again, it kind of kind of a neat uh, kind of a neat uh, detail to to watch and and so on while they're testing this thing. So again, hats off. Hoping uh, Morpheus uh, continues to to go well. Exactly. Wishing them all the best. Okay, so that brings us to the end of round number one, and we've got so many interesting topics to cover that we are going to move on to our second and final round. You'll see why in just a moment. But we will begin with Gene and some interesting questions posed by the media. Thanks, Sawyer. Yeah, this, this question kind of struck me as kind of, well, again, it was, it was from a very interesting source, it happened on Sunday morning during one of the press events for Maven, and it took me aback for a moment. Um, number one, because of its source, but number two, because it was such a compelling question. And uh, Sawyer, I, you know, without further ado, Sawyer, if you could go ahead for me and run that, uh, that sound clip 
from that press conference. Uh, again, to preface this, this gentleman was from the Travel Channel and was there to cover, believe it or not, the Maven launch. Um, and, uh, well, without further ado, Sawyer, go ahead and, and, and run the clip for me, please. Sure thing. Here it is. My name's Todd Mesereau. I'm here uh, for the Travel Channel, and it's my first launch. I'm really excited to be here and, uh, and see Maven on its 10-month journey. It's a long trip. Why is the Travel Channel here, some people say? Well, <laughs> Maven's, Maven's traveling, and Maven's going to Mars. And, you know, Mike and other people in this room probably want to go to Mars, too. Um, as a taxpayer, I think NASA is an astonishing return on bang for buck. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Everything that's been done on such a tiny budget. And I guess it feels like we're in this transition phase with all these private ventures into space. And people think, oh, yeah, Richard Branson's going to send people up into space. You know, it's low Earth orbit. It's, you know, it's just a couple of minutes of weightlessness. I guess my question is, is there any sort of long-term marketing plan to capture the excitement of what NASA is doing and sort of translate it into better funding? Because it seems like this comes up all the time. And reaching outside of this room and outside of this people, in my mind, is NASA's biggest challenge to secure enough long-term funding to make it, uh, you know, make us get, allow us to get to Mars sooner. Um, the last thing that, in my mind, that captured the public imagination was Chris Hadfield singing, you know, Ground Control to Major Tom. That reached outside of all these people here who love space. Is there any plan? Are, I know there's, uh, you know, there's, legis legi there's uh, legal restrictions on lobbying and things that NASA can do, but is there any sort of, is there any sort of overall marketing plan to communicate the great excitement of everything that NASA does? So... Yeah, this gentleman went ahead and asked the proverbial $64,000 question. What can NASA do to market itself? And is there any game plan to do that? Uh, John Grunsfeld fielded the question uh, the best way he was prepared to do, which was to say the way we do it is to fly missions like MAVEN and to fly missions like um, Mars, you know, uh, uh, the, like the uh, Mars uh, rovers that we've done, and to try to go ahead and use those missions to sort of capture the imagination of uh, of people all over the place. Uh, the, uh, for instance, also for launches and for uh, for some of the landings. I know uh, Curiosity's landing was uh, uh, was uh, broadcast over the. Uh, uh, over the billboard over in Times Square. Um, ditto with, I believe there was a, uh, uh, just recently there was a, a Soyuz launch that was also, uh, you know, broadcast the same way uh, to get people excited about that. But that is just really, really sort of the proverbial $64,000 question. What can NASA do? And what is NASA doing? The first thing I thought about were the now what's being called the NASA socials. They used to be called NASA tweet ups. Uh, that's one outreach device. But um, I had mentioned that just after the conference on Twitter. And somebody said, well, in some instances, too, that's kind of still preaching to the chorus a little bit because you get people over there that are you know really, really into what NASA is doing to begin with anyway and want to you know meet people and you know, like-minded individuals in that kind of uh, vein, but they also want to go ahead and meet the uh, folks that are actually doing the science and or, or dealing with the spacecraft. I was like, well, yeah, to a degree, but I knew, for for instance, uh, during my, uh, my stay with the folks over at uh, uh, one of the houses during STS-134, that really wasn't the case. There were a couple of people or, or uh, one or two people over there that, uh, we're, we're there just to have the experience, sort of like, you know, the bucket list type thing. Uh, but those individuals still carried that message home. And even the diehards that were there to meet, you know, meet like-minded people and to, and to meet folks like, like John Grunsfeld and, and like uh, uh, William Gerstenmeyer and so on, they went home and they carried that experience to family, friends, coworkers. You know, some of the swag they got. I know, for instance, I whenever I go to events like this, um, I 
go back in there with a you know, handful of swag and I give it out to folks. Um, I, I remember too there was a there was a PSA done, and th- this was this was years ago. Uh, I forget the name of it now, but um, there was it, it depicted a small little toddler that was trying to go ahead and and grasp a a plush globe of Mars. And the equation was, you know, here we are here, you know, the, the toddler representing humanity, uh, just growing up, just learning how to fly in this new ocean. And again, we are essentially children in that respect. And we are trying to go ahead and understand our place in the universe and grasping for other worlds. In this case, Mars would is really, really the first step to do that. It was a very short 30-second PSA, and I think it ran on PBS maybe twice, and that was really about it. And I, I, I think that, that PSA is still out there on the Internet someplace. Um, I'll try to see if I can find it uh, for the show notes. But it was a very powerful 30-second PSA. And it's a darn shame that something like that can't run, um, say, during the Super Bowl or something like that. But NASA, I think, too, is in a position where, okay, fine, do we do marketing or do we fly a mission? And I think that's what Grunsfeld was trying to trying to, to communicate to this individual. But um, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to ask the question here of the panel. What can NASA do in your estimation to go ahead and try to market itself better um, and I'm going to leave this too also to our listeners, and I'd love to get some input and some letters on this. In your estimation, what can NASA do to market itself better and to, to get its message out? Uh, it's, that's a question that's been crossing my mind for, for the longest time. This program, in a way, was sort of organized to try to establish that and really get the the information out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, whatever it might be. Um, But it was to go ahead and tell the story of space exploration. So we're kind of trying to do that here. But I'm going to leave it with the rest of the panel, and I'm going to leave it with you, the listener. What can NASA do to go ahead and market itself far more effectively to the point where it does translate into possibly higher budgets, even in a financially constrained environment. So, guys, I'm going to throw it out there to you first, and I am really looking forward to getting some listener input on this question and and analyzing it uh, for uh, for the future. Well, I think some of what they can do, they are doing. Uh, as you were talking, Gene, I was thinking, well, how about celebrities? And then I thought back a little bit. I'd just seen a press release from NASA. They have LeVar Burton doing a public service announcement for NASA. They also had June Lockhart, William Shatner, Will Wheaton, Nora Jones, Will I Am, Mary Blige, and met Dwayne Johnson, and many other celebrities that have done this in the past. So that certainly is a step in the right direction. And I think that what they're doing is working. Uh, what to do more? I don't know. I, I'd say just keep do- doing what you're doing and keep your eyes and ears open for that next big thing. Uh, I can think of a couple of things. Uh, a lot of it, again, as you mentioned, is already being done. If you just take a look at Twitter, I mean, t- just think of things NASA uh, might tweet or whatever the hashtag was when the government was shut down. Uh, things like that. Even if the, Even if NASA is open, just spreading, hey, Here's what I saw NASA's doing, and then all the retweets and the spreading of it will continue to spread the word. Another thing, and this one I think is really important, I was at a talk somewhere. I think it might have been at Space Fest, I don't recall. It was a talk that I heard somewhere, and in it, they said that it's difficult for NASA to continue on and, you know, to be praised and to get funding when even the NASA supporters are trashing it, going, oh, look at what they're doing with SLS or what they did with Orion or what they're doing with this program is terrible or why why, or why or are they allocating more money here than there? Somebody mentioned that, you know, the more critical we are of NASA, the more people are going to see that, that, you know, if NASA's diehard fans are saying, hey, yeah, NASA, you're doing something wrong, well, then the public's going to say, 
uh, look at these people. They're pro-NASA, and right now they're saying NASA's doing stuff wrong. Does every agency do something wrong? Yes. Uh, I can almost without a doubt say yes, that at least one person has a complaint about almost every single agency that exists in the United States government. But I think that's just another thing. It's promoting the good, even if we're not, you know, entirely with it saying, yeah, I don't agree with what they're doing, but I still support NASA as a whole. And I think that's another big part of it. Well, sort of to that end, um, I'm going to say that the folks that maybe some I don't want we've been we've been critical here on the program in the past of NASA and, and uh, what they're doing, some of their some of the act. But I, I look at it in that respect as tough love. We really do want this program to succeed because if it succeeds, I think humanity succeeds overall. But uh, to be critical of individuals, it, it depends on where how the criticism is is focused. If it's if it's criticized to make you guys look inward and say, "Hey, what are we doing wrong?" and to make yourselves better, you know, if it's constructive, if it's not destructive, then it's good criti criticism. And I think it, it's it, it's just trying to make make you make you realize that you know you might be doing something wrong, and maybe we can go ahead and do something better. Um, it's not necessarily being you know, hypercritical of the program saying this will never work and all this other stuff. It's more of a more of a self-correcting type thing. Um, hey, Mark, to your point, yeah, if we can get more, I think NASA's onto something too, especially with the 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 Will I Am's and uh, of the world and the Mary Kay Blige's of the world. If you can get more individuals on board to go ahead and get PSAs out like that, problem is right now they're only airing on NASA television. I would really like to hear, you know, the audio portion of this on 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 commercial radio somewhere, or you know, even the video portion of it on network television. I really wish it could be there. I mean, network television already runs here, Smoky Bear. Only you can prevent forest fires and all this. I still don't understand why you can't go ahead and have a PSA on network television about space exploration. I think just 30 seconds of that during a certain period of time would go a long way. And especially if you have, Mark, as you pointed out, the Mary Kay Blige's of the world saying it. I think that would get a heck of a lot of, lot of attention. So, Mark, you're on to something there. So, uh, I think you've heard... My opinion, you've heard Mark's opinion, you've heard Gene's opinion, we want your opinion. You can always send it to us by email, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, tweet it to us at TalkingSpace, or post it on our wall at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. And again, links to all of those to contact us are in the show notes. And we really want to hear from you on this, and another story coming up later, so we're hoping to hear from you guys this week. Okay then. So, our next story, I know a lot of people have been going crazy already that they're starting to play Christmas music, but uh, it's not even Thanksgiving. So, we'll give you a Thanksgiving story, and for that, we'll go to Mark. Well, here in the U.S., Thanksgiving in 2013 is on November 28th, coming up pretty quick. I saw a press release that I thought was just A number one interesting. If you remember first which stands for, for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. First Robotics Competition, as it's probably uh, more commonly known, was started with inventor Dean Kamen. He founded it in 1989, and since then, having been to one robotics competition, it's become quite popular. I know the local high school here where I live in North Florida is a team that they send to the Orlando First Robotics Competition, the regional. And anyway, here we go with the tie-in for Thanksgiving. Anybody ever hear of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? Well, the 87th is this year. And leading off the parade is First Robotics Competition. They actually have five of the FIRST Robotics competition teams that are going to represent FIRST. And the teams are Team 1538, the Holy Cows from San Diego, California. Team 1477, Texas Torque from the Woodlands, Texas. 
Team 180, which I saw down in Orlando a couple years ago. Spam from Stewart, Florida. Team 16, the Bomb Squad from Mountain Home, Arkansas. And Team 25, Raider Robotics from North Brunswick, New Jersey. Now, these teams have built their own robots. And the ones that they'll be uh, showing off in the parade are ones that were used in the 2013 season, which was called First Robotics Ultimate Ascent. And they've been modified by the students to perform some specific tasks for the parade. Texas Torque's robot, Sonic, will cut the ribbon to signal the official start of the parade. And following the ribbon cutting, the other team's robots will shoot confetti along the parade route. Students will then drive their 12-volt battery-operated 150-pound robots down the entire two-and-a-half-mile stretch, ending at Macy's Herald Square. This 87th annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade will be live from New York, November 28, 2013, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on NBC. 9 a.m. Eastern Time is currently 1400 UTC, and I think it's worth a watch. I'm looking forward to seeing the robots in this parade because it's all humans and floats and stuff, but especially as someone who has worked with um, Lego Robotics specifically, you know, it's it's unique and it's amazing to see what these kids can build. They're just kids who have a passion for design and building robots and stuff, and here they are in one of the most famous parades in the United States, if not arguably the world. I think that's pretty darn awesome. Okay, now let's finish things off here with this one I think is going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, for those who don't know, on Saturday, November 16th in the United States, both Discovery Channel and the Science Channel aired a special called The Challenger Disaster. It's a docudrama produced by the Science Channel as well as BBC who aired the program earlier this year. The show, the docudrama as mentioned, follows the story of Richard Feynman, who you might know as the uh, famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, and his time on the Rogers Commission investigating the Challenger disaster in 1986. It is based off of his memoir, What Do You Care What Other People Think?, a book that I have now added to my to-read list after seeing this. It includes William Hurt portraying Dr. Feynman. And it's interesting. It's two hours long, and it looked into everything that went on behind the scenes and portrayed him as a man who started off not wanting to get involved with politics again and basically being the odd one out and, in the end, being the one, as you might recall, from his famous experiment with a piece of O-ring rubber in a glass of ice water, being the one to basically show to the world what happened to Challenger and some of the inner workings of NASA that weren't actually working so well. I thought it was an interesting program, especially myself, with the connection to the Challenger Centers. Although, keep in mind, this does not actually revolve as much around the Challenger disaster as it does Dr. Feynman's role in the commission. But it is still a very interesting watch, and for those in the United States, it is available to watch on Discovery's website. For those overseas, um... I'm not sure of any legal means to watch it, but there are probably ways. I know I'm not the only one who watched this. Um, Gene, what did you think? Dr. Feynman was a personal hero of mine. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Professor Albert Stoner, who I used to work under at the County College of Morris Planetarium, uh, when he was going for his, uh, his master's in um, astrophysics, uh, had the uh, distinct honor of, uh, of uh, interning under uh, under Dr. Feynman, and he also shared some rather interesting tall stories about him. Um, sorry, the book that you mentioned, What Do You Care What Other People Think, is one of my favorites, and uh, I had actually used it as source material. I'd written you know, several papers for both my associates and my bachelor's degree uh, about the Challenger accident itself. Um, so the film, if even if you don't care about what happened, and even if you don't care about spaceflight, it is still a, a compelling whodunit story. 
Um, the way I, I try to describe it to individuals who um, really didn't care, and I said this during my day job, uh, think, of, um, think of House or the television series. Substitute, um, substitute doctor for physicist and substitute a medical element for a puzzle. And that's kind of sort of what you got here. And, uh, and by the way, uh, Dr. Feynman was far less of, a, uh, of an obnoxious individual. He was actually kind of a, a lovable character uh, in person. Um, so he was not as obnoxious as the house character. But uh, what did I think ultimately about how they depicted what occurred? Um, <laughs> there was some, they did take some dramatic license with a few things that, that had happened. But overall, uh, the story was, was well told. Uh, indeed, it showed how NASA was flawed in, in some ways during that period of time. In fact, William Graham, who was then the administrator of NASA, was the interim ad administrator. James Beggs had just resigned over a scandal that he had to go ahead and clear his name over. That tells you anything right there. Um, we were kind of overreaching with shuttle at the time too. We were trying to get it to do things that I don't think really with the flight rates we were talking about. We were talking about uh, uh, you know, two flights a month, something along those lines. And I recall, I could be wrong and I don't remember exactly what the number was, but it was a fantastically you know, silly number as far as um, what they expected a, uh, a loss of crew or, or a loss of vehicle situation to be. I think it was one in 10,000. Nope. Before it was according to the documentary. 100,000, I think. One in 100,000, exactly. Yeah, one, one in 100,000 was some ridiculously high number. When in reality, as, as, as the, the program showed, I think it was really one in 70 or, or even one in 25. Um, I mean, the, the shuttle itself was, was, was an extraordinarily fragile vehicle. And here we were trying to, to use it as, as some sort of, you know, federal express delivery service to, uh, to low earth orbit. And, uh, it just showed how you know, grandiose those plans really, really were. Uh, but they depicted Dr. Feynman very well. And they also depicted, I think, um, his relationship with the lead, of the of the commission, uh, former Secretary of State William Rogers, as also uh, strained, and it was strained. Um, Doctor Feynman did exactly what I would have done had I been in those shoes. I would not have wanted to wait and sit there for five days uh, to begin work. I would want to go in there and find out just what the heck happened. So Feynman kind of used that that downtime in the best way he possibly could, which was to fly down to the Marshall Space Flight Center and, and learn how to speak shuttle because Feynman kind of looked at the shuttle as some sort of you know boondoggle. He really didn't didn't really think of it as a, a wise uh, endeavor. That being said, he went down to Marshall to, to learn about the shuttle and to learn all, all he could about how the vehicle operates and how it works. Um, and he was the one that was sort of poking around and, and going where, where angels feared to tread, uh, because quite frankly, he had that freedom, uh, as the movie pointed out, uh, other members of the team may have been beholden to certain government entities or, or certain, you know, military entities and so on. Feynman wasn't beholden to anybody, but, but himself. So he had an extraordinarily high, an extraordinarily high degree of freedom, and he he leveraged that. He used it to find out exactly what went wrong. And um, they the end credits uh, literally gave me a chill um, when 
because they depicted the actual moment. They showed the actual film of Feynman taking the uh, the sample of the O-ring rubber and showing how deformed it was after sitting in, in ice water for a very long period of time. Well, I took the stuff that I got out of your seal and I put it in ice water. And I discovered that when you put some pressure on it for a while and then undo it, it maintains, it doesn't stretch back, it stays the same dimension. In other words, for a few seconds at least, and more seconds than that, there's no resilience in this particular material when it's at a temperature of 32 degrees. I believe that has some significance for our problem. And for you know, people who live in the Northeast or, or live in cold areas, we kind of understand that if you leave a rubber hose, a rubber garden hose outside, it becomes brittle and it, and it breaks. Um, and, and that's unfortunately what happened uh, from an engineering standpoint uh, to Challenger. But also Feynman just wasn't interested in finding out from an engineering standpoint what occurred. He was also trying to find out from a process standpoint what occurred and, and to try to fix that process. And he was awfully critical of that. And he, a uh, rather uh, interesting report on that fact and unfortunately, it didn't make it into the main body, into volume one of the report. And I think that was a, a conscious decision made by William Rogers. Um, I don't know whether whether or not it was just simply a personality conflict, that the two men just did not get along, or if William Rogers had this, this process that he wanted to stick to. Um, the Even General Kutna, who, who was a member of the... Um, the commission who basically uh, was uh, Feynman's sort of confidant through the whole thing. And in the film that that's, that's also shown very, very, very good too. Um, those two sort of really got along well and played off of each other and fully understood what they were up against. In fact, uh, there's one line in the film that I kind of, wish really, really came to the fruition. It was uh, uh, the general leaning over to Feynman saying, co-pilot to pilot, comb your hair. Uh, Hurt, William Hurt playing Feynman, who, by the way, played him extraordinarily well. I mean, he had his mannerisms, his voice patterns really, really down. Uh, basically leaned over, leaned over and just, you know, kind of brushed his hair a little bit. Um, Feynman in reality leaned over and said, pilot to co-pilot, can I, can I borrow your comb? He didn't have one. Uh, I really wish that that was left in, in there because it, it was a, it was a moment of, of, of humor. There, there were kind of funny moments in this thing, but it also really, really depicted the, the confusion that NASA was in at the time and the, and how, how, how the accident really splintered things around and how there was a lot of finger pointing going on. Um, but ultimately the, the commission and Feynman really, really, really tried to go ahead and make NASA understand what it was doing wrong and, uh, try to make those changes. And it did eventually. The problem is though, I don't think we learned them entirely because, um, as Sally Ride, you know, God bless her, who is no longer with us. Uh, had observed uh, during her her uh, snit as uh, as uh, a member of Admiral Garman's uh, commission investigating the Columbia accident, she basically said you could substitute names, but the situations are almost the same. She said it was like looking into a mirror from from 1986. So I'm hoping today we've learned our NASA's learned its lessons from both of those events. And is going forward. And judging by the successes that we've seen thus far, even in these budget-constrained times, I think they have learned those lessons. And they've gone forward and they've done incredible things. Again, today's Maven launch is a, is a testament to that. But uh, um, again, I think the film, getting back to the film, I think it was very much well done. Uh, indeed, there was a lot of dramatic license taken here and there. The Discovery Channel admitted that. There was a disclaimer in the beginning of the film, Sawyer, as uh, you observed when we were um, talking about this offline. Uh, it, it was just um, 
it, it was it was quite a good ride. And uh, again, hats off to uh, both uh, William Hurt, who who portrayed Feynman so well, and uh, to Brian Dennehy, who actually did a very good job uh, playing playing William Rogers. Um, I'll also say too, and Sawyer, you had mentioned this um, as we began this conversation about Feynman getting into this and then really not wanting to. In fact, he, he wanted to stay away from Washington for as long as he possibly could. He really didn't like getting mixed up in there. He had a lot of other things he was playing with um, uh, from his, uh, for, for his physics studies and so on and really felt he didn't have time to do this. Um, it was really his wife that basically talked him into doing it. Uh, after uh, William Graham had called him up. And basic, she said, basically, look, you're going to have a handful of people that are going to be led by the nose and, and, and just going along with the flow. And then you're going to have one person that's going to be a sleuth that is really, really going to go ahead and try to find out what just went wrong. And, and it was his wife that really, really talked him into it. Um, I'm, I'm glad she did. It also depicted, too, unfortunately, Feynman's struggle, his final struggle, it turned out to be, uh, with, uh, with cancer. And um, uh, the film depicts those moments as well. Uh, this was essentially Dr. Feynman's last grand adventure, if you will. But, uh, uh, again, a, a salute to, a, to quite a, an extraordinary gentleman who had so many contributions to the area of physics and indeed helped uh, stop World War II or end the war in the Pacific uh, back in the 19, back in the 1940s. He had worked on the Manhattan Project. So, but after that, he, he made so many breakthroughs in, in physics and so many contributions uh, that his name will probably be remembered forever. So uh, if, if folks can see it, I think it's going to be, I don't know, sorry, I'll have to, have to check the discovery site, but I think it is online. Still, yeah, it's either online or folks can order the DVD or, or Blu-ray. Um, I'm not, I, I don't work for Discovery Channel, so I'm not plugging them, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that uh, uh, it is well worth the investment of the time to watch this. I, I really, really mean it. And I, by the way, too, I will go ahead and recommend the book. What do you care what other people think? Um, it's a very candid uh, memoir of that uh, of of uh, uh, Dr. Feynman's experiences on the Rogers Commission. So I, I really, really encourage the audience. And Sawyer, as soon as you pick it up, let me know. And and as soon as you get through it, uh, let me know because I want to hear your your opinion of it. Um, but again, I can't encourage this audience enough to go ahead and pick up that book. Um, please do. Yep, and uh, a link to the U.S. Uh, version of the show will be in the show notes. No guarantees that it will work abroad, but it's worth a try. Um, and just to add on really quickly, um, I have to agree. I was going to mention that they did uh, an amazing job of balancing the portrayal of him fighting with his disease as well. Very subtle in the beginning, but... Um, well progressed through it um, and again Hurt did an absolutely phenomenal job portraying him, in fact I would say most of the actors did a phenomenal job of portraying the actual characters um, relatively true to how they were um, so I have to give everyone there credit for what I consider to be a really good um, docudrama and of course we want to hear what you thought of it too, favorite moments moments you thought didn't portray very well things that bugged you, things that you thought they, you know, you really enjoyed, let us know. On both of the stories that we talked about tonight, we want your opinion, or on any of the stories. Again, ways to contact us are in the show notes. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and I want to give a shout-out to uh, everybody uh, that was affected by this weekend's tornadoes in, in, the, mid, in the Midwest. Um... Hopefully, uh, you folks are doing well, and you're in our thoughts, and indeed, uh, everybody in the Philippines as well. You folks are in our, our thoughts as well. And a real quick shout-out to a, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Catherine Qualthrow, who's not 
really feeling all that well. Uh, wish her a very speedy recovery. Yes, and thank you all for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See you later. <laughs> Short, simple, and to the point. I like it. Uh, so thank you as well for joining us tonight. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Mm-hmm.